In the era of artificial intelligence and machine learning, a lot of organizations are using programs to collect vast amounts of information available through open source intelligence. But automation has its downsides. Is this the right data? Is it biased? How could it be biased? How could I check it for bias? Justin Seitz is a cybersecurity consultant and creator of the Hunchly app. He's been combing through OSINT for years as part of security investigations. Despite a high-tech society, he argues we need to continue investing in personnel, especially as we deal with emerging threats. If you uh, focus more on allocating budget towards tools instead of your people, you will produce far more faulty intelligence, and you will ultimately do a much worse job of protecting whether it's you or your country or your organization. We'll examine best practices for automating data collection and how OSINT will change over the next decade. Hi there, I'm Tristan Field-Jones, joined by MJ Benais this week. MJ, it's always a pleasure to have you along. Well, thanks very much, Tristan. I'm excited to be here. And of course, you're listening to uh, SITREP, a podcast powered by Samdesk. And MJ, uh, this week we have a really interesting guest talking about uh, a topic that may not be top of mind for a lot of security uh, practitioners, but it certainly relates to, you know, the future of intelligence, of data gathering, and how a lot of that is going to change over the next decade and, and certainly uh, over the short-term period, you're going to start to see some pretty significant changes in these areas. Right. So our guest is Justin Seitz. He is the founder of uh, an app called Hunchly, which uh, basically is an OSINT tool that, that I've used before, and it creates case files based upon website traffic and, and where you go, and, and just the, your investigation sort of gets compiled into a beautiful little package for you. Um, but, you know, we're going to move beyond the app and we're going to discuss um, really the future of, of OSINT in general, or, or for those of you who are uninitiated open source intelligence um, and, and how OSINT practitioners and investigators um, have to comb through a whole bunch of data, some of it being useful, a lot of it completely useless. So how can we utilize automation and how can we utilize AI to bolster our investigations? How can we use um these tools to, to basically help the kind of the human practitioner uh, work more efficiently and, and work more effectively when doing open source intelligence gathering. Okay, well, without further ado, uh, we will allow Justin to introduce himself. So I have a background in cybersecurity, um, spent a number of years kind of working on the pointy tip of the spear, um, working in offensive security. Uh, as part of doing that work, open source intelligence was kind of part of what we did on some engagements, but I found myself more and more drawn towards that end of things instead of writing exploit code or reverse engineering stuff, penetration testing. So in 2015, um, started a company along with my wife and started to focus solely on open source intelligence, uh, developing training and also building tools around it, which is where Hunchly came from our flagship product. Um. I, I want to just start, you know, you started Hunchly, you know, several years ago, you've been in the OSINT world for a while now. And I want to get to where OSINT is going to be, let's say in a decade or two decades from now, I want to talk about how AI and automation will play a role in the future of OSINT and, and intelligence analysis. But what are the differences you've noticed just from when you started 
in the OSINT world to today, 2022, what are some of the big shifts or, or changes in how intelligence analysis occurs? I wouldn't be an expert on intelligence analysis uh, specifically, but uh, what I have seen shift in the last seven, 10 years is that um, it's not necessarily as easy as it was to collect data in the same way. So this is for a variety of reasons. So anything from Instagram locking out their API, right? And that used to be an incredibly valuable source of intelligence and a great place to automate a lot of the collection that we were all doing. Um, we've also seen shifts to just different um, technologies being deployed on major platforms like uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where they're using kind of more modern web frameworks to build out their sites that actually make it a little bit more difficult to capture them uh, from the perspective of, say, a tool like Hunchly, uh, make it slightly more difficult to scrape them when you're looking at it from an automation perspective. Um, so those things have definitely created some challenges. Not, you know, they're not challenges that can't be overcome, but they are definitely new challenges. I think the focus on privacy and security as well has changed things. So people are far more aware of kind of how they fit into their, into the privacy model. I think, you know, to sum it up in the last seven to 10 years, everything has changed, but nothing has changed at the same time. It's really about how investigators are adapting to both the legal frameworks and kind of the technological frameworks that are kind of shifting around underneath them. And I guess this is where the discussion surrounding automation comes in because in an era of increasing information, I mean, there's you're, you're drowning in misinformation and disinformation and actual truth, if you will. So at some point you need to, to figure out how to make it easier to aggregate all this data and all these details. So tell us a little bit more about what automation of open source intelligence looks like and how that will play an increasing role uh, for gathering such data or details. Yeah, so I think that, you know, automation, I guess, to start with is really, in my view, designed to replace repetitive human action. So if you can imagine, you know, I guess uh, back in the day, you would see people like, hand clicking, hand copy pasting into spreadsheets and uh, a lot of this work. And so for me, when I kind of look at this, it's really about how do we replace repetitive human action, not replace the human, uh, which I think is like a common kind of misconstrued idea around automation is that, oh, well, this is actually going to replace a human investigator, which is not really what it's there to do. I think that due to the you know the volume of data that people are collecting also i think is an interesting thing in a lot of cases kind of boiling the ocean is not that effective right it, it is not an effective technique to simply vacuum up half the internet and then you know start to sift through it so i think that a, a lot of folks that I have spoke with over the years, I think that's kind of where they start, which is I want to like suck up all of this data and then I want to make sense of it later without really first thinking about what is good data? 
what is the actual useful, valuable things that you are looking at manually, meaning while you're browsing, while you're report writing, while you're doing things that involve you kind of scoring the the value or kind of the, you know, how reliable a source is. So I think that where you're going to kind of see some interesting um, tools or maybe some techniques um, emerge in the next 10 years is really looking at how do we find that valuable stuff faster? How do we kind of drill down and instead of boiling the ocean, how do we create tiny little lakes that have exactly what we need in it so that we can tease out connections so that we can extract entities of value? And I think this is going to be a shift from how people have been doing it up to this point, which is really this try to aggregate as much information as possible and figure it out later. We've seen this sort of significant uptick in people practicing OSINT, uh, new people getting into OSINT as a sort of, I guess, you know, starting off as a side hustle just for interest, and then it becomes something bigger. And really the internet and obviously social media and all that has played a big role in this. Um, do you think as as more people start kind of getting on board the OSINT train, as as maybe these tools become easier to use or more automated, it becomes less kind of a mundane process. Do you think we're going to notice uh, like uh, that kind of the, the ball is going to keep rolling sort of down the hill? Like we're going to see more and more people get on board, more and more people developing the basic skills of just how to investigate uh, using OSINT techniques. They don't have to be necessarily like professional practitioners, but even just on an amateur level. Um, do you think this is going to be a shift in that direction? Absolutely. So I think that, I mean, even if you look at the genesis of Bellingcat, right, arguably one of the best groups of open source intelligence practitioners on earth. And I mean, Elliot started it as a hobby, uh, as a blog, right? And I think that when you kind of look at how Bellingcat was formed, when you look at how Web Sleuths has really been this kind of quiet cornerstone of OSINT living off in the internet solving cases. Um, and then you kind of even look at how Netflix has popularized uh, OSINT, right? So I think that a lot of that is is kind of popularizing the fact that armchair sleuths are actually quite effective. Uh, you don't need a degree. There's no certification body in OSINT like there is in cybersecurity or other places. And I do think that there's going to be more and more people who are going to either through interest, so that might be human rights, it might be climate or whatever it is, that they're slowly going to start wanting to learn how to do better research. Or often in a lot of kind of the victim advocacy work that I do, it's victims uh, of crime who are kind of not getting the support from law enforcement sometimes. Uh, maybe there's not even legislative support or laws around things that have happened to them. Uh, or you have situations where they just don't simply have any type of investigative support. And so they start doing it on their own and they start learning and teaching themselves to help further their own cases along, or at least to help feel like somebody's doing something. Uh, and that somebody is themselves. But um, I think it's one of those things where because the, this whole kind of OSINT used to be kind of a technical term almost, even though it's really misused a lot. Um, 
And now it's kind of become more of a, something that lots of people understand what it is, what it means. Um, and I think that's going to continue. And I think it's amazing because I've seen some of the absolute best research come out from amateurs or, you know, people who don't have a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. Um, and I hope that continues and I think it will. What are the dangers of automation, especially for something like open source intelligence? I mean, it's really difficult to kind of sort through all that information. So obviously, like you said, we're trying to replace not the human, but sort of the mundane actions done by humans. But having said that, though, automation, I, I, I would think anyway, might pose the risk of not getting the information you want or maybe getting the wrong information. How do you see that uh, evolving, Justin? Yeah, I think like the danger of automation is really when you fundamentally don't understand what your automation is doing, right? So and what I mean by that is really, you know, if you just kind of write a code that goes out and starts aggressively mining a particular source or scraping a particular website, whatever it might be, um, even things like timing, how aggressively you are retrieving that information, you could end up in legal trouble. What you do with the data afterwards, depending on your jurisdiction, for example, if you are governed by GDPR, um, you cannot just simply go out and vacuum up everybody's or even an individual social media and then store it somewhere. Right. So it's not something that's actually permitted under those terms. So I think that the big danger is really where people can get into situations that they don't fundamentally understand what's going on from a manual perspective. They didn't actually go through the process of kind of doing the point and click 10 times in a row to validate, okay, I understand what I'm collecting and what I'm doing with it. Um, but then there's also this kind of follow on effect too, where if you're actually using automation or some type of algorithmic way to make decisions or score content, or uh, you think of like a machine learning model that is identifying child abuse material or an image recognition library that's uh, helping to find what might be pictures of children, you also have to like take into account a whole bunch of other cultural biases, right? So for example, we're, you know, I'm a straight white guy. How I approach a problem algorithmically is going to inherently include that bias, right? So what we've seen is that automated systems and classification systems and photo recognition systems that are being deployed actually are taking this bias and carrying it forward into those algorithms, which means you can have higher likelihoods of non-Caucasian people being detected in crime scenes. You can have uh, all kinds of weird uh, racial and other uh, effects that can happen simply because who wrote the algorithm or the automation dictates what bias is going to be inside of it. So I think there's a few dangers around over aggressive or not understanding what your automation itself is doing. And I think that can also be coupled with uh, all kinds of cultural and racial biases that can make their way into that code where the automation on the other side, which is like classification and applying those AI and machine learning models can really 
create problems if you're doing analysis over top of that, like humans are actually interpreting those results. Um, and it's not, if you buy a commercial product that does this classification work, you have no ability to actually know what kind of biases are inside of that black box. So now you're doing analytical work over top of it and you don't actually really understand that the data you're looking at is actually tainted by bias. Well, and that brings up the risk too, where if you're using these programs to, again, sort through all this stuff, and it doesn't even need to be for law enforcement or for specific investigations, because, you know, a lot of the organizations and the folks we've previously spoken to on on this podcast use OSINT for a variety uh, of methods. Uh, we spoke with someone from Amnesty International several months ago who talked about how, you know, they were using uh, uh, OSINT to identify war crimes in Ukraine as just one of many examples. But, you know, the, the danger here, based off what you're describing, Justin, is that if this information is collected automatically and if the program is written with a certain cultural perspective or certain biases in mind, and then you start sharing that with other people, now you're just adding more, uh, now you're adding more junk, if you will, to the misinformation problem. And then how long before that gets shared with the higher ups? And then now we're, we're talking about the snowball effect. Yeah, and that's exactly it, right? And I think this is why, you know, having the human in the loop at all steps of the process is really important. I think that that is exactly, that is exactly the problem where once you have kind of ingested that information, you analyze it, then report on it. Naturally, whatever bad stuff was in there is now like being broadcast out to somebody else that could be decision makers. It could be the general public. So I think it's really important for people to be thinking about these things while they're in particular, while they're writing their reports that they are really questioning, is this the right data? Is it biased? How could it be biased? How could I check it for bias? How could I approach the same data from a different angle and get the same result? Um, but again, this is the, one of the dangers of automation is that when it's a black box or the product that you've purchased from somebody, you might only get one lens into that data and you might not have budget to have another tool to give you another lens. Um, so at some level, there's always that fallback where I've got this information and most organizations, including organizations like Amnesty or other human rights organizations, they don't just take this stuff at face value. They actually, human beings go and validate and they uh, look at it from different angles. And, um, and obviously in the case of war crimes, you know, we saw in uh, 2017 or 2018, the first kind of ICC case that was uh, based solely or largely, I should say, on social media evidence, right? And that was the uh, Al Warfali case. So again, uh, that wasn't some algorithm that just went out and found this stuff. It was human beings doing the work and then using algorithms or using some automation to help maybe collate or find more examples of the same videos, that kind of thing. But this is a human-led endeavor. So again, Really, I think that it's about making sure that the humans fully are in a position to be able to question the data that they're analyzing is really an important thing. I want to sort of leap forward a bit here. Obviously, diversity is an essential kind of shift that will potentially need to be made 
sort of for the future of OSINT, or that will need to be made rather for the future of OSINT. But, but I would love to know as, as someone who works sort of in this field and, and again, has seen it evolve up to this point and now moving forward, what is the, the future of, of OSINT analysis uh, for, for professionals within the next decade? Like what, what do you think will be sort of like, if you could make profit, like if you were a profit and you could sort of see the future, what would you say, like, I'm going to hedge my bet right now next decade, these are the changes that we're going to see. These are the developments we're going to see. So I think for sure, we are going to see more GDPR-like legislation here in North America. I think it's kind of unavoidable that, you know, Europe has really done an amazing job of leading the charge on uh, trying to protect, um, you know, the privacy of the individual. And I think that that is going to be something that we are going to start seeing more and more of here in North America. It might not be quick, but uh, we are going to see more and more legislation and stricter rules around this stuff. So that's one thing. So I think it's important for people to, again, um, be preparing for these types of things in advance by thinking, what, how do I actually collect this stuff in a way that's targeted, right? And And not in a way that's uh, including information that's useless. Uh, and this is really a shift uh, that I think people will have to go through. I think we're gonna also see, you know, the, the access to machine learning tools and other things where you're able to kind of carve through data or at least be able to tease out insights or um, things like, you know, natural language processing and entity extraction, things like this will be more accessible to the average Microsoft Excel user, right? That they will be able to tease out connections and uh, be able to leverage tools without having to know any programming languages or having a data science background. So I do think that those tools will be more and more accessible to people. And I do think that uh, what I've seen over time is definitely people are more willing to engage in learning how to write code. Sometimes it's as simple as like combining 10 different documents into one. You know, there's really a whole bunch of ways that we lose time as investigators that really have nothing to do with investigation. Uh, it has to do with like collating or collecting stuff that you already have or, um, you know, just automating processes that are mundane. Uh, but don't involve automating the actual collection process. So I do think that in the next 10 years, we're going to see more and more of that. There will be more of a focus on learning how to write code and and being able to develop even simple tools for the average investigator. There's so many OSINT investigators now. Everyone can do this as it gets easier and easier as time goes on. Like what's going to be the reaction from sort of the other side that is trying to sort of skirt the law or skirt the rules or skirt human rights or, or skirt justice itself? Like how, how is that going to be the, the pushback, I suppose, when the vast majority of us know how to do this work? You know, I guess from my background in offensive security, it was always us on the offensive side and the defensive side, and we would come up with a new technique, they would come up with something that mitigated it. Then we would adjust and then they would go back. And so it's this constant kind of arms race back and forth as you would figure out new offensive techniques, the defensive side would always figure out new defensive techniques. I think it's gonna be the same thing in OSINT. I think that you're gonna see over time that um, bad actors are gonna adjust their techniques. They're gonna adjust how they do things. 
It's not going to leave them 100% invisible, but it does mean that you will have to actually like really dig deeper. You're going to have to start looking at things that are non-obvious um, and it does require more tenacity. Uh, you're just not going to be able to go get the answers you want immediately. So I do feel that more and more that that is going to be the case, that you're always going to have to have this bag of tricks and then you're going to have to have a lot of tenacity. Once that bag of tricks, you're, you've come to the bottom of it, you have to really go, okay, well, what else can I do? And that really falls back on your kind of core skills and, and some of your tenacity. Um, but I do, I also think that this will become, it will become increasingly more important for whistleblowers to be protected because if information is obviously being increasingly more locked down and you have human rights abuses or you have a large corporate entity who's doing bad things, I think what we need to be able to do is protect the people that are trying to raise those concerns to regulators or to law enforcement um, and do a better job of protecting those people because uh, they are they may be one of our best sources at some point in the future where open source intelligence just might not be a thing you can do on an organization to get the answers you want you talked a little bit about the need for coding as the OSINT landscape evolves so it sounds to me like that will be an increasingly important uh tool to have in the toolbox when dealing with this especially you know in the near future Justin, are there any other skills that you see that may be important to learn for, you know, OSINT investigators or any security professionals who use open source intelligence on a regular basis for whatever purpose? Yeah, outside of coding, I think um, the, the skills are really, it's a tough one because it's, it's really just like, learning to use it really is as simple as learning to kind of draw connections and and learning to use even simple tools like google to find the information that you want so the barrier to entry is quite low but it's not a matter of i don't think it's really a matter of like you need specific advanced technical training or anything like that quite often you know, somebody with a very little technical skill, but knowing how to use Google, knowing how to take good notes, right? Um, something that journalists are incredibly good at, but the average person really doesn't realize that your notes are this entire knowledge graph that um, you need to be able to walk through and will help kind of form up timelines and other stuff like that. And, you know, good search technique and good note taking actually with a little bit of energy, tenacity will take someone quite a long ways in an investigation. Um, and this is really where you see those armchair sleuths that have cracked cases and stuff. It's nothing fancy. It's just good notes, good documentation, and being able to know how to use Google. Really, like that's these are the fundamental things that can really get a lot of wins for you. Yeah, in, in journalism, we call it gumshoeing, right? It's just, uh, yep. you just have to gumshoe it and and that's it. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so I guess yeah, as things automate and as machine learning sort of helps make things easier at the end of the day, if you're within security or crisis management or an NGO or whatever, you just need people who are just kind of just good at gumshoeing. 
at the end of the day, like technology will never be able to keep up, let's say, or, or un, like technology will never replace just the ability to gumshoe. Never. No. And I mean, that's what really we focus on at our company, right? Is the fact that we actually, our technology is designed to stay out of the way. So, which is unusual for a product, right? Because most of the time you want your products front and center, but our product is actually designed to stay out of the way because we want the human being to do their thing. We know that that's where all the, all of the investigative horsepower is in that human being. I'm actually going to plug Hunchly right now because I'm actually a user of Hunchly. Um, this is, this is, <laughs> I do not work for Hunchly. I, I, but I, I, I'm not being paid, uh, but I, I do endorse the product because I have to be honest, I use it for every investigation I've ever done from a journalistic perspective because it just collects notes for you. And, and I'm one of those people who, who is, is not a great note taker naturally. So it, it does, it just kind of, kind of scrapes it all for me. And then I can just hit keywords and all of a sudden, oh, there it is. Um, so uh, shameless plug for Hunchly. Uh, <laughs> I, I am a user and it's wonderful. Justin, we are in a world that really is in constant turmoil. And I know that in speaking with a lot of the security professionals and the crisis managers who've been on the show, y you know, they're juggling one thing after another, right? You know, emerging from the pandemic and you know dealing with geopolitical tensions and who knows where the next conflict may flare up oh and also by the way climate disasters to add that on to everyone yeah. else so what would be your advice or maybe some thoughts to these security professionals who are listening to this um who are again trying to juggle all these separate events how should they incorporate this into their security plans or security training uh, and again, without feeling overwhelmed because just so much is going on at once nowadays. I think that a lot of, a, a lot of it really boils down to, and I think most good organizations and their crisis teams, they have documented processes, right? And if you don't, you should, you should have playbooks for when events come up, how do we assign resources? How do we go through a checklist of assessing the who, what, where, when, why? Um, how do we start to uh, think about collection plans or other things? So much like in the InfoSec and cybersecurity world, uh, they call them, you know, incident response playbooks, right? Much the same thing. And I think most crisis managers have these playbooks because you don't want to be thinking about process in the middle of a crisis or when an entire war flares up. You don't want to be running around trying to figure out what tools, resources, and people do we need to use to address this. I think there's also a lot of um, kind of vicarious trauma that we have to be aware of too. And I think that whether you're dealing with an incident at your company or you're dealing with stuff coming from the Ukraine war, um, part of this is also that it takes a toll on the human being, right? You're exposed to imagery, you're exposed to sounds, you're exposed to video and other things that uh, can traumatize you. So I think nowhere have we seen this more than in the last couple of years, right? Um, and I shouldn't say more. I mean, we've had human atrocities and wars going on for years, right? Um, but I think what we're really starting to see coupled with pandemic and other forms of burnout is that trauma is really taking a toll on people. So I think it's also important to think about what are we exposing our team to on a day-to-day -day basis? 
how do we actually measure their like mental health? Are we doing a good job of making sure that our team uh, is not um, continually every day exposed to atrocities? Um, are there plans included in our playbooks that um, force people to take time away from a particular project or include things like therapy, resilience training? Berkeley has an amazing, uh, has done an amazing job at their human rights lab um, to kind of document you know, and, and to kind of give some, some guidance around, uh, resilience training and how to handle these types of things. So I think, again, it's like on one half it's process on the other half, it's really about, um, making sure that your team is not like, you're not, uh, effectively burning them out or over traumatizing them. Uh, and it, it takes many different forms, but I think that these are really two approaches, having process, paying attention to that to that uh, kind of vicarious trauma, these two things can really give you a lot more longevity out of a, an analytical team or a crisis management team. I think it's interesting in this episode, we started out with this notion of, we're gonna talk about the automation of OSINT, we're gonna talk about AI and machine learning and how it's gonna, how it's gonna alter how we like gather intelligence um, into the future. And the conversation went full circle back to just humans doing what they do and the fact that it doesn't matter how much you use ai how much you automate how much the technology steps in it always is going to boil back down to the people who are doing the work uh the people who are investigating the people who are looking at the imagery the video footage the geographic data whatever and it's they're the ones who have to stay alert stay vigilant but also sort of have good mental health and stability. Uh, otherwise, the whole circle collapses uh, if you don't have the people. Um, so I find it fascinating that, that at the end of the day, we are here to talk about technology and we got back to the very human condition of it all. There's not many interviews I do where I don't advocate for mental health, right? So um, I think it's important. I think particularly since I'm a technician primarily, um, that in the technical world, we're not spending enough time talking about mental health. And uh, it's one of those things that uh, you, your analytical team, your investigative team, if they are mentally healthy, if uh, trauma and, and their well-being is kind of closely monitored and they're taken care of, you'll whoop any AI model's ass 10 days out of 10. If you don't pay attention to those things if you uh, focus more on allocating budget towards tools instead of your people um, you will find that you will produce um, far more faulty intelligence you will have higher turnover and you will ultimately do a much worse job of protecting whether it's you or your country or your organization so it's always about the people at the end of the day, always. No algorithm will ever replace humans and algorithms don't experience trauma. So it's really critical to think about this as a major problem going forward. And in particular, when we're in times of war and you just need to open Twitter for 30 seconds and have an image or a video without your consent shown to you that can really change the course of your day right um and i think it's really particularly if you have teams that are specifically out there hunting through this stuff or you literally all you do all day is chase down crisis after crisis the whoever leads that team needs to pay attention to that because it will absolutely impact the quality of the work 
and naturally it will do serious harm to your team uh, if it's not kind of closely watched. Uh, Justin, again, fantastic conversation. Where can people go if they want to find out more about you or if uh, they want to get more information about the automation of OSINT and kind of how that intelligence is evolving? I mean, feel free to plug whichever website or wherever you want people to find out more about you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm JMS underscore DOT underscore PY. So throwback to my uh, heavy Python coding days. Uh, And yeah, you can check out Hunchly at hunch.ly. Justin Seitz is a cybersecurity consultant and creator of the Hunchly app joining us on SITREP. I'm Tristan Field-Jones and MJ Benias. It is always a pleasure to have you along. Thank you very much, Tristan, for having me on today's show. And thank you to all of you, our listeners, who have tuned in for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us at the SITREP, you can shoot us an email. It is sitrep at samdesk.io. And you can also take a look at our social media feeds on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, Just look up Samdesk, all one word. Until next time, stay safe out there. Mm